Hello, you're listening to the Duke Law Podcast from the Duke University School of Law. I'm Brandon Garrett. I'm the L. Neal Williams Professor of Law and the director of the Wilson Center for Science and Justice. This episode has been selected from our regular schedule of guest speakers, panel discussions, and conferences. I hope you enjoy it. So starting with you, Alice, thank you. Thank you, Duke University, for having me on today. It is really a great honor for me to be here speaking to you virtually. I wish I was there in person. I can't wait to uh, tour to to your university and also be a part of the things that you're doing there. Reentry. When I think about my own reentry back into society, I think about someone going into coming out of a time zone, a time warp. That's what it felt like for me. Because when I went to prison in 1996, there was no internet. So when I came out, the entire world had changed around me. I was in this bubble and I knew nothing about phones. I knew nothing about Facebook or Twitter or these type of platforms, Zoom platforms. I recall when my daughter picked me up uh, from prison that day that I heard someone speaking in the car who said, begin route. It scared me to death. It was her GPS. And I think maybe that was Siri who was speaking to her, telling her how to get back to, uh, to her home from Alabama. But my journey was a very long journey. Thank you, Brandon, for the introduction. I was uh, originally offered just to, just to give you a little bit of context for those who don't know as much about my story. I was a first time nonviolent offender. I'd never been in trouble in my life. I was offered three to five years for my role, which was a minor role in a drug conspiracy. I made the decision to go to trial and I was convicted of attempted possession and sentenced to life plus 25 years without the possibility of parole because there is no parole in the federal system. Upon my release, having been incarcerated for almost 22 years, upon my release, even though I received a commutation, I still had the weight of being on probation for five years. People would see me out, see me at the White House, see me at events speaking, but at any moment, anything could have triggered a violation. There are so many collateral consequences, so many things that are put in place that can trigger a pro- probation violation, which would have landed me right back in prison. For myself personally, that was a heavy, heavy weight. And I'm sure it's a weight that many returning citizens face. And unlike some other returning citizens, I didn't have the I didn't have the obstacle of trying to find employment because I came out already having employment waiting on me. I had, even though I had a life sentence, I never stopped planning for one day re-entering society as a free woman. So I had job opportunities lined up. So I didn't have some of the obstacles that I saw other women had who recidivate, who came right back in prison became a revolving door because when they came out of prison, they were locked out of good jobs. I've said that they're locked in when they're incarcerated. And then when they're set free, they're locked out of employment opportunities. Thankfully, I believe it was December of 2019. In fact, it was December 17th. The Fair Chance Act was signed into law, which impacted those who were seeking federal employment with uh, federal agencies or with contractors, it allowed them, it allowed those who had criminal records uh, or any convictions to be able to have a more of a level playing field where if they were qualified for a job, their criminal background, their past would not keep them from interviewing. Basically it was banning the box. Now, after the job had been secured, the employer still had the right to do a a criminal background check upon that applicant, but it didn't automatically exclude those from being able to apply for the job. That was a huge win 
for those who had criminal uh, records to be able to to apply for a good job. Many companies have followed suit and are now doing the same thing, but there's way too many who have not followed suit in just giving us, and I call it us because I'm one of them too, of giving us an opportunity. When I received a full pardon last year in August, that was like the biggest weight that was lifted off my back. I celebrated that the way that I almost celebrated my release. Of course, nothing could compare to my being released back into the arms of my family after over two decades in prison. But one thing that I saw in the stories that I heard from the women who returned back to prison was obstacles that caused them to reoffend again. And as I said, employment opportunities was a big thing. Also, having an opportunity for housing. Housing is a big thing. And many people return back to the very things that brought them to, into prison because the situations have not changed. They were still locked out of opportunities for housing. When I came home, I had a terrible experience myself with insurance, with having two weeks after I returned home from prison, I got very ill. I don't know if it was food poisoning, or if it was nerves, or if it was just a culmination of just being overwhelmed by walking into this new world. I ate something, I had to go to the hospital. I was so sick. I didn't have any insurance because coming out of prison, most don't have insurance. So I was stuck with this huge hospital bill and I'm trying to rebuild my life that I'm really just now paying off. I had to pay it in increments because of no health insurance, no transportation. They come out without transportation to even get to a job. Another huge thing that I face and that those others face is having identification. There has to be changes where when a person comes out of prison that they come out with identification. I couldn't open a bank account. Uh, there's not too many things that you can do without identification. Even if you're stopped and you have no identification, it's trouble that's going to follow you. So there are so many obstacles to re-entry that causes recidivism. Those obstacles must be removed. And one of the things that I've done, Brandon, since I came home, the organization that I founded, Taking Action for Good, a big piece of that, I fought for clemencies and pardons also, but sitting square in the middle is re-entry. I help those who are returning get what I call their freedom legs because they come out like me. I know how it feels. I have practical knowledge, not just thinking about having a theory of what a person might need, but from my own experience, I wanted to be able to help those who were re-entering society get a leg up. People are not looking for a handout. They just want opportunities. I have never heard a woman who was incarcerated say that when I go home, I'm going to start back into criminal activities. They want to go home, get a job, get housing, be productive citizens, take care of their families, reintegrate back into society. So I'm really working hard to help in those areas of reentry. And I cannot uh, not leave out the mental health aspect of it. There are so many who also need no help to come out. So I help identify those needs. And I, I'll pass this on to, to my brother here, who is a fellow, a fellow who's a fellow prisoner, <laughs> uh, to to talk about re-entry also. Thank you so much, Alice. Dante. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Dante Sharp. Uh I want to thank first y'all for letting me come speak to y'all. Uh I was sitting here listening to her and I, it just come, it, it comes to me a lot, you know, that it's a privilege for people to let you speak into their lives, you know, and especially coming from where we come from and know how people kind of look down on us too. A lot of society look down on an ex-prisoner, whether you were innocent or guilty, you know. Uh, but she said a lot of good stuff, a lot of stuff that was, you know, 
brought back memories. And I, when she was talking, I was just picturing when I was in prison, going to school and things like that. And I was thinking about re-entry when she was talking and, you know, uh, getting out. You know, I did 26 years and she said she had a life sentence. I had a life sentence for something, a crime I didn't commit uh, and did 26 years. I went in as a teenager and came out at 44 years old, you know, uh, you know, about the phones and things like that. Everything was so different, the technology and stuff like that. Uh, and I was thinking about re-entry when she was saying re-entry and just to, just the name of the uh, the meeting, the program we have here, re-entry, you know, re-entering the world society. Uh, you know, it starts in prison. You know, I learned that it starts with you in prison. You know, when you first go into prison, you have to have that mindset that you're going to prepare for your re-entry. Even though I was in this, I still said that when I went in there, I said, I got to be ready when I do get out because I always had hope that I was going to get out. I didn't know it was going to take that long. I just didn't know when, you know, uh, you know, uh, but far as my re-entry into society, it was kind of uh, up and down. It's been kind of up and down uh, emotionally, physically, financially it's been because of the, you know, the job I got from Forward Justice, because when I was in Greenville, I left Greenville and went on to Durham because of uh, Reverend Barber, Teresa Duke, uh, Forward Justice, and a lot of other people helped me. You know, it, Teresa always said it took a village and it did. It took a lot of people, you know, to help me uh, on the physical aspect and some of the emotional aspect, because there's some certain parts of the emotional aspect and the mental aspect nobody can't really help you with unless you open up your heart and your mind to it, to people, you know, and that's kind of hard. Now, I used to think it was just hard for a male, but it's hard for females too, especially when they've been through ordeal like that in prison, when you got so used to, and you did a lot of time to where you had to close your emotions off and close off certain parts of yourself to not let the system, the uh, prison life environment seep, seep inside of you. You know, it, that's, that's, that was a big fight for me, you know, especially having a life sentence when you when you don't see no light at the tunnel, so to speak, even though I did have hope. Um, but my re-entry part, you know, I struggled in, the main thing I really get now is the the mental part as far as, the it's a little fear still with me because of the, uh, the, the freedom that's out here. The freedom, when I say that, I'm saying, People are free to come in your house and kill you. See, in prison, you got fences around you. You got guards walking through, they locking the doors. But out here, you know, prime example, somebody, just we just moved in a house, so I'm in Charlotte now, and somebody in this nice neighborhood, it's a nice neighborhood, friendly, kid-friendly, but somebody just broke in the car out there in the yard. We've been here probably two months, you know, and ever since then, I haven't felt safe, you know, because I feel like they're, if they're bold enough to come to the yard, in this neighborhood that they're bold enough to come in your house. So there's no fences and, and my sleep patterns are thrown off because of here, you know, because I'm always expecting somebody to try something crazy because of what I went through. Um, I wake up one, two, three o'clock in the morning every day. That's why I was yawning a while ago because I've been up since like 1.30 and it's constant. And I go back to sleep during the day in the morning sometimes. Then I fall asleep heavy at night, but that's part of the impact you know, uh, and the part about the jobs, you know, when I first got out, I put filled out applications. I wanted the job. I had never worked a job in my life or cast a check in my life. So I filled out a couple of applications in the furniture store and places like that. And I, one furniture store I called when I heard my name hung up on me, you know, I called back and I figured that was because of the notoriety behind my case and all the marching and stuff in Greenville and things like that, that went on. A lot of people kind of scared to touch me. So I called the job back. And when she heard my name again, she hung up again. I said, dang, so I won't trip. And that got to be what it was. You know, so I got tired of trying to get jobs. Then I didn't have no uh, no kind of background. My background was prison and prison jobs. But I just found out that you can use your prison job on the application. But uh, you know how that is. And by me being innocent, I have to get my record expunged. That hasn't happened yet. We're working on that. Uh, when I got out, when you're innocent and you get out of prison, they really open the doors. It seemed like they're kind of angry at you or punishing you for being innocent. And they put you out. And when you get out, you don't have nothing. You know, the same program that's offered to a guilty person are not offered to an innocent person. Only thing you can do is hope you get a pardon of innocence from the governor, which I haven't received yet. 
we're working on that trying to get that or you can have a civil suit you know and those can that they're not uh mandatory you might not get there or you might or if you wait five or six years so when you get out being a wrongfully convicted person it's kind of it's really it's really more difficult than people think it is and it's sometimes better off if you're guilty getting out because you have more options you got you know you can go to the uh, uh social service to get food stamps they got different programs set up for a person on parole that a parole officer can help them get but being innocent getting out you don't have none of that if it wasn't for forward justice duke wrongful conviction clinic reverend barber and all the other people that helped me um there's so many i can't name them all that helped me since i before i got out and since i've been out you know if it wasn't for that i would have been you know, just an innocent man that got out. So that's why I left and went to Durham and then I'm now I'm in Charlotte. And um, now I talk to guys, I do a lot of public speaking on voting rights. I speak on uh, the COVID-19 in prison, trying to get guys out. We got a victory recently, 3,500 people getting released. Uh, second Chance Alliance, getting people second chance, getting the records clean, expunged, so everybody can have a second chance. Uh, I do, uh, just a lot of speaking and interviews on news stations and things like that. Uh, and like I say, it's a privilege to be able to do it. Um, I'm going to be expanding hopefully in the future. I'm trying to be patient. I learned patience in there. And uh, it's just, it's a blessing to be out and I have proved my innocence. You know, I turned down all those pleas because I was innocent and knew I was innocent. I could have went home years and years ago. You know, they offer me time, serve so many times, but it's just hard to say you did something when you know you didn't do it. And I was raised like that. I was raised from the country on a little farm, you know, and, you know, them roots was bred in me, I'm so to speak, you know, to stand for what you believe in, to stand, you know. Uh, I didn't know I had it in me. I didn't know the things that my mom and aunt and, them was, and uncles them were saying to me had soaked in like that about being strong and things like that. Because, you know, I was weak at times, but overall, when I went through it, came out, the re-entry part is really up and down. You know, society is not stable. Prison is kind of stable to a degree. So when you get out here and the society is like an ocean with waves up and down, up and down, you know, uh, but you will get used to it when you get out. You know, you got to make an effort to do anything you do out here. And the one thing that I see about re-entry that is time. Out here, everybody is fighting for more time. You know, don't have enough time, rushing, about to run you off the road on the highways, you know, trying to get somewhere on time, on time. But in prison, you're trying to get rid of time. You're trying to find something to do time, make time go faster, you know. So that's the thing, you know, I'm just adjusting. It's been a good adjustment, you know, I'm, I'm a granddaddy grandchildren with me all the time. Uh, my daughter, me, we didn't have a relationship because she was born while I was in prison. So, and I didn't know the, the the impact that going to prison, guilty or innocent, had on your family until I've been home almost two years now. And I've seen the emotional trauma that's happened to my mother and my brothers and my daughter, even my grandkids that are young, you know, and everybody that knew me and dealt with me before this, you know, before I went to prison. And it really was deep and traumatic. I didn't know it and understand and financially, you know, cause my mother and family were sending me money and keeping me with money. So you don't have to ask people for stuff and things like that. And it's it was really tough on there. And I, I'm just finding that out. You know, I really am. I really am just finding that out. So re-entry, it, it's a lot that we can do to better it when people get not guilty or innocent, but being guilty, a lot of people, people have to be informed about it because in prison, they kind of don't give it to people that's got life sentences because they feel like you're not getting out, you know? So you really don't get the chance unless you be one of the ones that happen to get a map, a contract where you sign to uh, say you won't get in trouble and they'll let you out in three years, they give you a contract. But if you got a life sentence, you know, you don't get to talk about re-entry or get to go to take any of the classes in prison because they figure you're never getting out, figure it's a waste of time. I'm gonna pass it on to Ms. Wade. Hi everyone, thanks again for having me. Um, and thank you so much, Ms. Johnson and Mr. Sharp. I'm honored to be here on this panel with you. And 
Also, of course, a little disheartened to hear that it seems the harrowing experience of reentry is just as harrowing everywhere in the country as it is here in DC, um, where where I work with students and clients on reentry and release issues. Um, as Brandon said, I'm a visiting associate professor of clinical law and a teaching fellow at the George Washington University Law School in Washington, DC, and I teach in the prisoner and reentry clinic. And so what our students do in that clinic is that we try to respond to what the community seems to need at that time with regard to the types of prisoners we represent. And so what that's meant for us in the past year or so is we largely have been working on compassionate release cases um, because of a piece of federal legislation as well as a piece of local legislation that allows some of the oldest and sickest prisoners in the country to be released prior to the end of their sentence. And, you know, just speaking from that specific perspective, one thing that we've noticed in particular is that, and, and this is kind of related to what Alice said, is that um, many of our clients are expected to be able to get out and be able to navigate these complex systems that exist. But some of them have, you know, they've never seen a cell phone, they've never seen a computer, and they're just told, you know, call this number, go to this website. And it, it's such a, it's such a fragmented system, and it's so hard to access. And if you don't have a lot of experience accessing systems like that, it's just, it's really hard. And, and it's, it's hard to be given the runaround. And, and in our compassionate release cases, the release happens so suddenly. And I, I've really never seen anything like this in my life prior to compassionate release. But the but the things that the thing that we see happen now is the court grants our clients motion and then literally the next morning they are on a bus or a plane and they are on the way back to DC. And you know, we never know when to expect that court order. And suddenly, you know, someone who's been in prison since 1971 or 73 or you know even 1990 is suddenly just thrown back into the world and expected to to live in that world and in in even a more organized way than any of us who are who have not been incarcerated recently would be expected to you're just expected to have to do so much when you first get out and 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 i think that you know, I come from the experience of having several family members incarcerated when I was a child growing up in Detroit, and I just remember there being very few resources. And so I thought, well, now I I work and teach and live in Washington, D.C., where you can find a nonprofit to help you with anything, or you can find a legal services organization to help you with anything. Um, but what we've found as our clients are getting released is that the system is so fragmented that there's not really kind of one place or one agency that sees it as their responsibility to coordinate reentry. And we actually do have an agency like that and in, in here in DC, but our students who have been working with our recently returned clients have found that it's sort of another place that just kind of gives you a phone number to call. And that can be really tough to deal with. So, you know, all of the issues that Dante, you mentioned about IDs and stuff, these are all things that we could start to take care of these while folks are in prison. I think I saw someone in the chat recognize, you know, why are we not ordering social security cards for people who don't have them? It's pretty, it's a simple process. You're, you know, sitting in a prison that has all your records that proves that, you know, they know who you are, but we're not doing those things. And so I just, I think that what what, what my perspective on it is, is just seeing this infrastructure that, that isn't designed to accommodate people. It's almost more like an, like an obstacle course that you have to get through in order to be able to, to live your life on the outside. And, you know, it shouldn't be that 
you'll do better if you're on parole because you know your parole officer has good resources for you those resources should be available to anybody and we shouldn't count on continued correctional supervision to accomplish them because you know our our whole philosophy is that if someone's out they're out and they really shouldn't be you know under continued supervision just to get the resources they need and so that's a huge a huge mismatch that we see um and, you know, speaking from the perspective of how some of our students have been experiencing this, um, you know, I teach at a law school where people often, our students come and they get excited and they work on a case and then the motion gets granted and they're like, well, we did our jobs, welcome home and, you know, like sort of, you know, have a great life. And we've been, you know, really, we've been having some discussions in our clinic among our students about, you know, what can we be doing to support people and what should we be doing as attorneys to talk about what it's going to be like once somebody gets out, because these are conditions that we know about that someone who's been in prison for 40 years might not know anything about. And so I, I think that's an important thing, you know, just from the, the practicing lawyer perspective is to think about, you know, when does your job begin and end and what can we do to support people? Because I think we certainly know that, you know, that the rest of your life kind of begins the, the day that you get out. And um, we don't have a lot of resources for people. So we're in a position of trying to figure out, you know, what can we do? How can we facilitate that and make it easier? And um, a really unfortunate thing that we're finding out often is that when you have trouble getting a resource that you're fully entitled to, one of the things that a lawyer can do for you is call that person up and say literally the exact same thing that you told them and get you the benefit. And so that's another thing is kind of these public systems um, they're not trained to trust people who are returning citizens, who are trying to navigate their own reentry. Um, and it's they shouldn't be trained to only do something that you need when a lawyer calls or when a social worker calls. These need to be systems that are accessible to everyone. Um, and right now, unfortunately, we're not seeing that. But but where we do see it and where I would love to see our institutions better mirror a lot of what's happening in the community is that the support among families and communities for people returning is incredibly awe-inspiring. I've seen people who said, well, I haven't seen this person in 20 years, but sure, he can, you know, live in my extra room or I'll go pick him up from, you know, the bus stop or he could stay with me for a few days. And, and, and that kind of support, that kind of community support is really stepping in um, where a lot of institutions are failing people. And I would like to see institutions learn more from our communities about what it really means to, to welcome people back. And I would love to see something like that happen rather than these sort of sterile, faceless um, institutions that don't necessarily have an idea of specifically what people are dealing with when, when they come out of prison. Um, so I'm really looking forward to the rest of the session and I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you so much, all of you. And uh, everything that you've been saying has been triggering lots of really interesting questions and comments and reactions on the chat. It's uh, hard to even know where to begin, but there's some really, really interesting questions that I wanted to share with you all and see uh, what you each had comments on. Where to begin? What One question was about the emotional side of this and and specifically mental health resources and so one of the questions that Kenya Dalton just posted was what behavioral health resources are available during reentry I'm also interested for those who are engaging with reentry issues right now I mean just even when they are available provision of, of behavioral health resources during the pandemic I've certainly been hearing from my colleagues at Duke Medicine about the special challenges right now I'd be interested in your your re reactions to that side of reentry, the behavioral health side, whether it's substance abuse, whether it's mental health. Well, from, from my standpoint, from what I have been seeing with people who have recently received clemency and like compassionate release, clemency, uh, these rounds of clemency, the ones I've been involved with, they are immediately released also, just as I was. 
an hour and a half after I received the news, people probably saw me running across that road pretty fast for a 63-year-old woman <laughs> to rejoin my family. Uh, but as I've been able to help those who have been released navigate who needed mental health, I immediately contact the state. Unlike us, people that work simple, uh, strictly in the state, people who receive clemency on the federal level are spread out all around the country. So I contact, I find out what is being offered in the town that they're in, in the city, cities that they are in to help with mental health. And I try to get them literally crisis mental health because when they come out, some of them are so afraid. I've had one individual that was so afraid upon their release that I had to help them get immediate help. Uh, the families were closing in, they didn't understand. Uh, and something that Dante said, when one person goes to prison, their families do that time with them. My family did every single day of those 21 years, seven months and six days that I was incarcerated because they weren't totally free. Uh, so the families really, they are, sometimes they have unrealistic expectations. That person has not been with them for a, two or three decades and they are expecting the same person to come home. And that becomes overwhelming for some people because they can't live up to those expectations and they need someone to intervene. They need someone else that they can talk to. Uh, who who understand what they're going to. Uh, some go in if that substance abuse was not identified as a part of their crime. Well, they've never received any substance abuse treatment in prison. So they come out not having been given the treatment that they needed. And so we have to find someone that can help address those, those issues too. So it varies from state to state, from city to city what is available for a person who needs mental health treatment. And I just wanna back up just a little bit. I'm such a believer that there are so many people who don't need to be in prison. I happen to be in a facility that had general population, but also had a mental health in and a mental health out part of the facility. And um, just seeing the people that were in those on, in those units, prison was not the answer. They needed help, and to to recognize that, and to have uh, prison guards who really some of them are well, they're not really trained to be mental health specialists. It's just like having police now who may cope, who may enter a crisis, be in a situation where someone really needs mental health. Well, they're not really trained to address that. It's the same as officers. Uh, and so people come out needing mental health, help, mental health uh, help. And so that needs to be assessed. But as with compassionate release, with clemencies, those things are uh, when you're released immediately, you really don't have time to address those. But even with uh, probation, because most people come out there still on probation. That's where a good probation officer can come in, even though I know that they're not mental health experts. I think that that should be just a part of someone who spent years in prison. It's just getting, just having someone to talk to other than family to see if, they, if there are mental health needs that exist. Yeah, and your point about family is so important too because it's not it's something we always talk about when we talk about incarcerating people we always talk about what it does to communities and families when so many people are locked up but then when someone gets out we're like everything's fine now you've been restored you know congratulations to your community and 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 we know it doesn't really work that way so you know just like people read books to prepare for what it's going to be like to welcome you know a baby into their home it's important for people to have some kind of resource to understand what someone might be dealing with when they return from prison and and how best to respond to that and how they can support that person and um you know this kind of reminds me of 
what Dante, you were saying about, you know, how hard it is to get the kind of material relief that you need when you actually spent time in prison for something you didn't even do. Um, and, and that's also an area where I've, you know, I've increasingly heard people talk about, you know, like, what would it look like to, to give reentry support to a community in addition to an individual? So, um, so it's it's similar to kind of the reparations context is if we if we say especially you know if you were innocent and we want to make you whole once you're out we know that it wasn't just you that was harmed we know that it was the community that was harmed by your absence and harmed by the resources that were put into incarcerating people rather than giving them resources and so people just sort of end up back in the same situation um which is why i think it's it's so it's so vital that we consider families as part of the reentry process but as you know it's you know if you're a family member of an incarcerated person it's you can't just walk in somewhere and qualify for something that's for returning citizens you know if you want mental health services or something like that um so it's definitely something i think we should consider when when we're thinking about you know what do we want our reentry infrastructure to look like and, and what should people have we just cannot forget about communities and families I didn't have nothing, you know, none of that. So, but like you say, I didn't really notice that about my family and the community because it affected my community trust towards the, between the police, the police department and the, the district attorney office and the people, the trust was down because we did a lot of marching and things like that with Reverend Barber, Al Sharpton and all the different people and, you know, different uh, uh, press conferences and things of that nature. So it was a lot of tension in Greenville behind my situation and people really don't already didn't trust the police or the system. So after my situation, they really didn't, they really don't. And uh, when I got out and went home, I didn't think, you know, my family would that, but now as time's going by, I'm seeing it in my brothers, my mother, you know, my, my close family members and some of my not so close family members that I wasn't around so much, but they still, was around me, it really affected a broader community, you know, uh, and people focus on me more, but I was seeing that I could get the help, but me getting help and going back to living with my family and they didn't get no help because they, they didn't have no programs, couldn't afford it. That was kind of good. That could draw me back into, you know, my, it would be hard for me to come out of it. Cause I'm the type of person, you know, I hate people around me to be down and I'm up. That's not, I don't believe, I believe in people going up with me. I like to take people with me, you know, and I know if I would just got help and they didn't, I was going right back, you know, and it's my whole family. You know, I didn't realize it. It is my whole family that was affected deeply. You know, my mother didn't even start affecting her physically, you know, uh, my brother then more mentally, emotionally, one of them still kind of cried just talking about it. the youngest. He's about 40, you know. It's so much that it does to your family. And it's not, it's gonna, it's not gonna take just no one, two, three, four times, even if you do get help. It's really, it's so deep, it's gonna take a long time. Cause it happened all those years, like you say, they, they was locked up with us. It they it was just like they was in prison. And the people say that it sounds cliche at times when people because people say it and use it so loosely, but it's not cliche, it's real. You know, it's really real and it affected my daughter and she wasn't even born when I got locked up, but she grew up while I was gone and go, went through all of that. My grandkids, they're five years old, one is six and one is five. And they're even, they even say, granddaddy, you were going to, they talk about prison, you know, to me when they see me cause they know I was in there and they kind of, you know, and uh, it's so much that's been in and there's no, because the average person can't afford counseling to go to no therapist or nothing like that. The average person, because it's you know it's high, you can get you you they probably can go through social service or but it's gonna take long because the way the system's set up and like you say with the coronavirus right now, you know. But it really has affected uh, our family members so much in the community, and I didn't see it like that. But I did. The longer I be home, the more I see it, you know. And so much light will be in folk be focused on us, whether we're guilty or innocent, getting out that. They're not really focusing on the community. It's like, I'm gonna give y'all back this person and we're gonna help this person. But the person that 
And it's don't get me wrong, it's not their fault that the person that whether they were if they were guilty, you know, going to get locked up or nothing like that. Don't get me wrong. My situation is different, but it's still things that we have to do. If you're trying to fix that, you got to fix more than the person that's getting out. That person need more. It's more than than just about that person. You know, it really is because the whole community need to be made whole. You know, from family because families make up communities. So you got to help the families. You know. I make up, I'm part of the family, the family is part of the community and the community the whole is a part of the city. And, the, you know, so that's what we need to do. Try to come up with something, you know, to help the whole process, the whole pie, so to speak. Well, Dante, one thing that I have seen a change that has been taking place in this nation, much of the stigma of being an incarcerated person a formerly incarcerated person, the stigma that the families felt too, it's like the veil of shame has been lifted. More people are talking about, and they're not so ashamed to say that I have a loved one who's incarcerated. Even those who are incarcerated now are feeling even the benefits of this being so broad now and people talking about it, having these type of dialogues, having people speak at different places, I've been speaking at many, many different places and I've had family members come up to me and ask me what can they do to help their loved ones. A lot of this change that is taking place is because so much of the stigma and the shame of having a family member who's formerly incarcerated or is incarcerated now has lifted. So just getting this out there, the healing process takes place is taking place, is continuing to happen in my family. Because like Dante, I came home to grown grandchildren, not small ones, I had a couple of small, but they were mainly grown. So I'd miss all of their lives. They talked to me on the phone, they visited me, but they didn't know me as a free grandmother. And so really I'm finding that to be the fun part of us getting to know each other I'm just happy to be back at home with my family. I know I don't have all of the solutions. All of this is healing, but it is so such a joy to just be back in the community and to be back with my family. And together, we are working out all of our issues. One approach that folks, a few people are mentioning in the chat, which I wonder if it helps people uh, with adjustment, helps with the feelings of shame, some people were talking about the role that peer support can play in reentry, where it's available. I mean, it's obviously not available a lot of places, but for, for someone who's who is themselves reentered to be able to give advice and to counsel, are, are, are you all seeing more resources for that? More of a focus on developing peer support networks? I know, you know, in the innocence community, there's an emphasis at the network conference every year. We want exonerees to talk to each other about their what they went through and what reentry was like. Uh, I know here in North Carolina, there's there's some more work being done to try to make that available. So a big gap there. And part of what I do in my organization, TAG, is those who have been released, they then become a support person for those who are being released, who are released. And they check in on the others to see what their needs are, what they're going through, and also to have a listening ear. You know, we're just really getting this. We're, we're kind of feeling our way through the dark right now. And we're using our own experiences to help those who are coming home. So the peer part of it is extremely important because they'll talk to us before they'll talk to you. Yeah, that's the thing. It's just, it's so important to have somebody to talk to who maybe doesn't have a specific goal in mind except to listen to you, which is kind of not the typical types of programs that we want like that we make available for people so it's like i see some people in the chat saying like to qualify for this you have to have a substance abuse order to qualify you know for this and so it's like a peer support which i would i would love to see that built up more would be something that actually just provides a space to discuss things with people and also might make people feel a little bit more comfortable you know maybe if you've got someone else to talk to this stuff about maybe you feel a little bit more comfortable around your family because like you've had the chance to process those things but unfortunately we don't see a lot of that infrastructure here i think that the way in which we see 
with in which we see you know people who are formerly incarcerated sort of used as support is more on the kind of anti-crime side of things it's sort of you know reach out and squash neighborhood fights or something like that and i don't want to say that that's not valuable but there should be times that we're providing just pure support to people so if peer support isn't gonna you know stop some other crime that's fine because what it's doing is benefiting the person who's been who is re-entering and so we really need to recognize the expertise that people have and 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 the uniqueness of that experience because because people have a lot to say about it and unfortunately i yeah i really don't see a lot of peer support type stuff happening um here in dc and and although there are tons of informal networks for it uh but it's a little bit harder for the folks who are already kind of isolated from that community to to enter that and so that's a, a difficult thing and it's just really not something we see which reminds me of of another thing i i wanted to mention that i've seen in some of the comments which is there's one issue in re-entry which is not knowing about what is available but then there's the other problem, and especially we see this with housing, where you know the thing you need and the thing you want, but it's just not available. Um, and so that's the other thing that I want to encourage people to think about, you know, broadly is what do we need more of for everybody? Because often it's people who are returning citizens or people who do have criminal records who are getting excluded from this stuff because everyone's saying, oh, you know, we only have so much of it to go around and who are we gonna give it to? You know, this innocent person or this person who has a record. And so that's why we see all these restrictions on who can live in public housing and all this stuff. And it's it just having, not enough housing for everyone allows us all these opportunities to decide who's deserving enough to get it. And so one of the things that, you know, I, I always think about is what can we do in our communities to make sure that everybody's needs are met and that that everybody always intentionally includes people who are reentering because then we really have a landscape of resources that's actually helpful. Because if somebody is searching for a resource, they should be able to find it. You know, we've got we've got enough we've got enough money for it. Um, we just need to kind of put those things into action. And so, so I I do want to be clear that it's not just that people can't navigate the system. Sometimes this stuff isn't. It's just not available. On navigating the system, I also thought it was really powerful. Uh, Dante, you talked about this, and we have some stuff in the chat too, just about just basic things like getting a driver's license. Getting just getting basic ID documents. And I remember an exoneree that I worked on uh, on his case when I was a lawyer. I spent weeks trying to get him his driver's license in Georgia, I think. And his birth certificate was in Brooklyn, and he couldn't go to Brooklyn. And anyway, it was it was a, it was a nightmare getting that driver's license for him. But just the basic documents you need to to then get insurance or to get a job or to show who you are. There's some people in the chat just saying how outrageous it is how how hard it is even to get an appointment to. To get a license well in my situation man you know when i came home uh being uh exonerated and people saw it on tv and the news and everywhere i went people were coming up to me hugging me giving me money and making me feel uncomfortable <laughs> but, <laughs> you know i got somewhat a little favor on that in that area because uh, i went to the driver license place and i was so nervous i went probably a couple of weeks after i was out and uh Everybody seen the people be pointing. We, me and my mom went in the place, and I kind of felt like a kid. You know, I was kind of ashamed, not ashamed of going to prison. I was ashamed when I was in prison when I had went to the doctor and things like that. And shame is part of the, you know, the I guess the punishment they say where they visible shackles and things of that nature. But I was ashamed. I felt like a kid all over again. My mama having to take me by the hand and take me in here and teach me this, and every, that my pride kind of rose up a few times, and it still does at times you know, with this technology and things like that. So when I went to the driver's license place, the lady was looking at me funny and I'm like, oh, I, I, I see you, that's me. And she was oh yeah, I saw you on TV, this and that. <laughs> and that allowed her to help me get my license and encourage me. And even the lady I was riding with in the car, when she, when I went and took the drive, I'm nervous then, they think we're gonna make it. And she was, 
you know, talking to them. And I, all, my case and my exoneration being on TV and the news allowed them to kind of help me and people to go a little bit above and beyond. Oh, they shouldn't have done you. I'm going to do this. Or you went through this. You don't need to go through no more. So I'm going to do, you know, that type. But everybody don't get that. So like she said, you know, there's, uh, like Ms. Wade said, you know, there are things that uh, it, it's sometimes it's just not available and sometimes it is and sometimes it's just, it's so many sometimes. It's so many, you know, uh, and, some, and part of it too is how the system is set up too, you know, to be real about it. The system is set up from what I saw from being wrongfully convicted. If a system don't want to, I went to everybody, governors, wrote Obama, went to, you know, city council people, mayors and everybody. A lot of people, politics played a big part in it. People are scared to touch things like that. But if your system that's set up to, I guess, control our society, if it don't want to see the truth, that tell you a lot about it anyway. You know, that tells you a lot about our system and people. If you don't want to see the truth, and fix the truth when you've seen a wrong has been done and it's been like that and been going on, that shows me that the system really is flawed badly and it don't need to be, you know, tweaked enough. It need to be totally revamped, changed. And it's, it, it, that might not never happen, but we still can change and, and add something here and change something there over the year. We might not see it in our lifetime, but like I say, things take time and dealing with the system, it really takes patience and long suffering to, to get what you want to accomplish your goals when you're dealing with the system, you know, and with these changes that we talking about here and with the re-entry program and things like that, just to get, bring it all the way down to a, to the bare bones of, you know, uh, you know, you got flawed people running a flawed system. So you can believe all the, uh, the way they use the system is gonna be flawed the way it come out. So, you know, I know it better than anybody probably, you know, uh, Cause I went up and down, you know, I went through all the courts back down, Peels, MARs, Havens Corpus, everything corporate, anything you can name over all them years, you know, but eventually through my hope, faith in God and a little patience, cause I want patience most of the time, it happened. And so I always look at myself and I tell people, it's gonna happen, the change gonna come. It's already in the process like, like, uh, like Alice was saying, this is the time, and I believe this is the time to push as much as we can all the agendas about re-entry, you know, the criminal justice, uh, criminal justice reform, second chance, all voting, everything. I think this is the time right now. You know, a lot of people think you pull back during COVID or sickness or disease and things like that, but this really is the time to not let fear set in. And it, they can't stop us because we got this technology where you still can get it out there. You know, and I believe this is the time and over through patience and long suffering, we're gonna get what we're fighting for. We could talk a little bit about COVID and the pandemic. I mean, as a lawyer, I, I thought that given our constitutional law and given the role of our courts, that we would see courts and, and also, you know, governors that were issuing all kinds of emergency orders during the pandemic. I expected the courts, lawmakers, executive branch. I expected them to be doing large-scale releases, particularly vulnerable, medically vulnerable older inmates. I thought compassionate release, geriatric release would take on a new life and that it would happen fast because there was an urgency to act a year ago. And a year later, obviously, as we all have seen, there's been just a trickle of releases and the litigation. You know, lawyers file lawsuits. Lots of great friends of ours, colleagues of ours filed lawsuits all around the country. You know, lawsuits against practically every jail and prison in the country. And we saw them running up against a wall for the most part in the judiciary. Or when judges did act, they got reversed. And here and there, there were some exceptions, but um, it was re really telling to me to see judges say, oh, no, no, you know, it's not our job. And governors issuing all kinds of emergency orders. But when it came to releases, and as jails and prisons became viral epicenters, oh, I don't know, let's, you know, we'll let the prison authorities handle it. Everyone's kind of passing the buck around. I mean, do you, do you think that there is some hope that some, something positive will be learned about how we put so many people in, in our local jails, detention centers, prisons, lives at risk? So many lives were lost because of the refusal to do community reentry on large at scale. 
here and there a few cases, you know, a few dozen cases in Durham. It sounds like there may be a larger release in North Carolina now because of the settlement of the lawsuit, which is great news. But you know, a few cases here, a few cases there is not gonna is, is not gonna save lives. And we've had hundreds of thousands of lives lost. Is anyone gonna learn something from this? I mean, it's 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 terrifying how poorly prepared we were for the pandemic and how predictable it all was and how how few people did anything to act. I heard prisons being called petri dishes because there is no way you can social distance in a yeah. prison. Your celly gets it or you're in there with six other people, eight other people, even if there's two. There is no way that you can socially distance in prison. There's just no way. And someone had to bring it into the prison. So they usually come in through staff. One of the entities that has not been mentioned very much in the compassionate releases, and that is the role of the prosecutor. The prosecutors have fought so hard against prisoners receiving compassionate releases because they are still angry about a crime that may have taken place 20 years ago, 10 years ago. And so they fight. So it's, it's not up to the warden, it's not up to the judge really because the prosecutors step in and well, it really is ultimately up to the judges, but the prosecutors have so much power in who gets compassionate release because they are still, many are still fighting that person as if they're retrying a case and many have aged out of uh, committing any crimes uh, because the percentages, the statistics tell us we have to be smarter about uh, who we let go that these, even if there was a violent crime committed in so many cases I characterize as violent crimes when there may not even have been violence, there may have been a weapon that was in that person's uh, car uh, in their home when the crime was committed. And now they are labeled as a violent criminal because there was a gun there, a violent charge. So it's the prosecutors are really given a lot of power in the courtrooms to sway or to uh, not allow a compassionate release to go through because of them fighting that person so hard who they don't even know anymore. They just know about a crime that was committed 20 years ago. And the first thing they'll say based on this, when that person no longer poses a risk, safety risk to the community, retribution has been enough. So why are we still keeping them incarcerated? But that, that goes back to a broken system to things that need to be changed in our criminal justice system. And I think that more, the more that we are exposing these cracks and these big flaws, the more that we as citizens must act. If you see something that is wrong and you step away from it and you do nothing about it, when you've got the opportunity to use your voice, to use your vote, then you are now a part of the problem. Just to, to add a little bit to the COVID uh, conversation, I have to hop off and right after this to teach class actually. Um, but I, I think I echo what everyone else said. And I think the one thing that I would take away from, from you know, litigating these compassionate release cases in particular during COVID is that we really have the opportunity to do that now basically because of covid and the one thing that it has done that i that i will say that i that i appreciate being able to do is um actually being able to educate judges about what it means to be in prison for as long as our clients have been in prison because the people who apply for compassionate release are typically people who don't have any other avenue to get out of prison. So they're going to be serving to the end of their term or they're going to get compassionate release. There are no more appeals. There are no more, you know, other ways to get out. And so this is the first time that 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 judges and you know in our area of work have actually gotten the opportunity to encounter people that they sentenced to decades in prison and they're seeing a the havoc that prison can wreak on your body you know physically they're seeing what it can do to your mental health and they're also seeing 
how different someone is even 10, 15 years after they show up in your court, you know, for after being, you know, convicted of a crime. And that is something that I really think courts had very little exposure to. Um, and so I'm glad, I feel glad to be able to stand before a judge in a court and be able to say, look at who this person is. You know, this is not the person who you're reading about in this pre-sentence report from 1990. And, you know, you need to understand who this person is because they require a second look, um, you know, at, at their case. And so, so I am glad that we've been able to do that. But yeah, I've got to agree that, you know, I think we always thought maybe something will happen because of COVID. But I think it's just another example of how without kind of, taking that pressure and turning it into something, turning it into some kind of organized, you know, pressure that, that, that things may not happen, but, but, but I am glad to be able to share folks, folks stories um, in service of their release. I was just thinking, well, I was listening to Ms. Alice and, uh, you know, she said a lot of things, you know, and when I hear the compassionate release, really, you know, I think when you're sentenced by the DA, and even some judges, you know, and even jurors, you know, people think that because you committed a crime or, or been accused of committing a crime, that you don't deserve no compassion or nothing like that. You know, they think your punishment is punishment. You're supposed to be punished. That's it. You know, I had guys call me. I This is crazy because uh, God called me from prison last night about the compassionate release. He said his family sent him something. And he The uh, uh, compassionate release article and thing, and he saw my name in it speaking about it. And uh, he got my number for one of my other guys that be calling me. And I try to look out for the guy, send him money and things like that. And uh, he just got over COVID-19 himself. And he said, man, I would have never thought I had it. I stayed away from everybody. I had a teacher at home. They, they stopped giving them masks because they run out of them and things like that. And he was like, man, I didn't think, and I had it. And they put me in seg I mean, put him in segregation because he had COVID-19. So they punish you for getting sick there's nothing that they can do, really. And then they start back shipping people in and out from some of the worst COVID-19 camps, he was telling me. And then the other guy is like 64, 65 years old, been down 31 years. He called me a couple of months ago crying, scared, because everybody in the block was getting taken out with COVID-19. He hasn't got it yet. He hasn't attracted it yet, but he's scared because he got high blood pressure and things like that. And uh, he called me the other day. He was talking about, man, it's crazy. It's like... uh a petri dish, a cesspool up and He said, man, it's crazy with this COVID and guys like they don't care like it ain't real. I just heard about one of my cousins dying of COVID, found out last week he had it and he died this week. You know, I just found out last night. So, you know, it's real. And in prison, like she said, you can't stay six feet apart in prison. Your bumps in, in where I was at was probably a foot and a half, two foot, probably two to three feet apart, you know like this, you know, a little bit widen the screen a little bit. Literally, you gotta turn the side to get in there. So if a man cough, it's right there. And you can't walk around with t-shirts tied on your face, that's a skate risk, things like that. It's so much, man, that goes with that, you know? And I like to say, when I hear compassionate release, you know, they just, a lot of people think in the system, judges, DA, even jurors and people like that, they think that we don't deserve compassion, mercy, and things like that, you know, grace and things like that you know, because a crime had been committed or you've been accused of committing a crime. And that's part of the reason, you know, part of the reason is hard-hearted people and people with misconceptions about punishment and prison and things of that. Now, don't get me wrong, victim people happen, stuff happen to people, but at the end of the day, they're still human beings. We're still human beings that should be treated above animals. People treat their dogs better than they, than they treat people in prison at times, I'm telling you, or they think they should. And, you know, we haven't even talked about jails, but, you know, people in prison don't leave prison quickly, usually, or at least, you know, a felony sentence, it's going to be a year or more, obviously, sometimes many years. So many more people each year cycle through jails and, you know, spend the night in jail, spend two nights in jail. And if you get COVID there, you're bringing it back to your family, your neighbors. It's, and we saw jails around the country slow down a little bit during COVID. Now jail populations in some places have crept back up or even are at capacity because, because trials aren't happening. And, and that's been really hard to watch. Why do we always need to arrest people for minor offenses, even medium offenses? You know, people are presumed innocent until they've been convicted of something. Why can't people enjoy their liberty unless they've been convicted of a crime and, and be safe during a pandemic? That's been really hard to, 
to watch. We don't have any compassionate standards or medical or pandemic related standards for who should be put in a jail, right? It's normally the magistrates or whatever, the hearing officers, they're looking at, is this person a risk, public safety risk? Does this person pose a flight risk? Do I set cash bond or not? Well, how about, is this person medically vulnerable? Is this person, is this person gonna lose their Medicaid in jail? Will this person potentially die of COVID if they're exposed in the jail? Like none of those questions get asked when you're deciding what should happen to someone just pre-trial. And I, I suppose, you know, we talk about re-entry, but you know, there's also the re-entry when people leave a jail, you know, temporarily maybe, or for, for our lawyers in the, in the crowd, do you have any last words of wisdom to our, to our law students or to lawyers about what, what work lawyers can do to try to, I mean, obviously a lot of what we've been talking about is, is about resources, peer support, about assistance, and about more resources before re-entry happens, thinking about re-entry months, years in advance, and about new attitudes towards who should even be in prison. Okay, do you have any last words of advice for our law students, people who want to do this work? How, how can they make a difference? Well, I would say my last words to the law students are mercy. Remember that these are your fellow human beings. Fight for them as if you fight for yourself. Be merciful. We want mercy, but sometimes we forget to extend mercy. And they really have a sacred position, and that is fighting for the lives of others. And take your calling, because it is a calling to be called as an attorney, as a lawyer. It is a calling because you not only hold that person's life in your hands, but you hold future generations in your hands because that one person impacts their families, impacts generations to come. So I'm just looking forward to Duke University producing some of the greatest lawyers that this country has ever seen. Well, I just say, you know, add on to what Ms. Ellis say is, uh, Straight, stay true to who you are when you enter the world, you know, from school and go into your profession. Choose wisely, you know, uh, who you let mentor you because you're going to have mentors probably the rest of your life in each field. You know, people are uh, speaking into your life. Don't just let everybody speak into your life because, you know, all advice ain't good advice, you know. And when it comes time for you to make that decision on whether, whether you're a judge, DA, lawyer, to do what's right. I'm not gonna tell you to do what's right, make the, the right decision because I don't know what the decision, the right decision might be for you. I know what it, I, I know what the right decision is. The goal always go with what's right, but you got to live with the consequences of what decisions you make. Nobody should control another person's will. All I can do is tell you, make the choice you feel is right and be able to live with it. But like she said, you at one of the best schools uh, I know they put out good lawyers and advocates and for the wrongful conviction because Jim, Caitlin, Teresa, everybody, you know, that I met, you know, they're real some good people. Listen to them. Uh, but also take all the knowledge and wisdom you're getting and put it all together and actually evaluate it, look at it, weigh it out and see if it meets moral standards, you know, not just your moral standards, but humanity's moral standards and run with that. That's all. Could not thank you enough for joining us today. And thank you to all of you who are contributing questions and ideas on the chat. It was a really, really wonderful, rich discussion everyone was having on the side in the chat. And, and thank you just for, for sharing your life's work with us and, and your life's experiences. And hope others can watch this on video later. And I hope to have you back here at Duke and to share with us many, many more times, hopefully in person before too long. Thank you. Thank you so much again. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. You can also visit Duke Law on the web and at law.duke.edu.